Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, we can come in your presence. And we can set our minds for a while on the words that you have spoken in the Holy Scripture. Today I speak with a human voice to human ears, but we ask that your Holy Spirit will speak powerfully to our hearts with his own voice. And take the truths and make them a part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, we continue our series on Ephesians. It's been four months since our last sermon. It's been some things going on since that time, including a couple of people from the church visiting Ephesus, which is really great. They can picture things in their minds. Today we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, but prior to that we covered all of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is a very bright chapter. Um, Paul is absolutely uh, taken with Jesus. He's full of Christ. Almost every, every verse talks about Jesus by name or God the Father or uses pronouns like he and him to refer to the Lord. And so it's, it's uh, greatly excited by who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and also prays quite a lengthy prayer for the Ephesians and Christians that we would know more by the spirit of wisdom and revelation about who Jesus is and what he's done. And that we would realize that God has exalted him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So after that lovely, bright, encouraging chapter, we came into the darkness of chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, which made no mention of God at all. I was talking about the Ephesians and how dead they were and their trespasses and sins. They used to walk as a habit in sinning. They followed the course of this world, meaning they got their values and their temptations from the things that other people around them were suggesting or doing. They followed the prince of the power of the air, the Ephesians, remember, were very into spiritual things. They were trying to manipulate the spirits to give them a better life. And they were worshipping idols and the false goddess Artemis. And rather than controlling the spirits, the spirit, the prince of the power of the ear, was controlling them. And then we read that they were by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. For the bad things they were doing, they were under God's wrath. So today we follow on from that in verses 4 to 7. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God, God the creator, the one who made the heavens and the earth, God the almighty, the one who does whatever he pleases in the heavens and the earth, and God the judge of all mankind, but God being rich in mercy. The creator, the almighty, the judge is rich in mercy. Something that we see over and over again throughout the Bible. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. That's a couple of books before Psalms. Nehemiah 9. And follow along as I read from verse 16 through to 19. It's talking about the people of Israel. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you, this is similar to our but God of Ephesians chapter 2. But you, talking to God, are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. So the children of Israel experienced the God who was rich in mercy, we also see the mercy of God shown through the life of Jesus. You remember the, the man who was let down through the roof. He was crippled and his friends let him down through the roof and Jesus was there. Jesus could have just healed him. But Jesus did something more wonderful because Jesus, being God, is rich in mercy. And he said to the man's son, your sins are forgiven you. It's also the case of the lady who brought the alabaster jar into a house. It was full of ointment. And she came and she wet Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair to anoint him. And the Pharisees in the house are saying, doesn't Jesus know what kind of person this is? She's a sinner. Ah, Jesus knew all right. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Rich in mercy. Reminds me of a, an old hymn. Great God of wonders, all thy ways 
display the attributes divine, but countless acts of pardoning grace beyond your other wonders shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Not only rich in mercy, but he has great love. Someone once asked, this word loved, that's past. Does that mean he doesn't love us anymore? Of course, God does love us. But Paul wrote loved, I think because he was thinking of a particular display of the love of God. That was in giving us Jesus Christ. We read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us with a great love by giving us his son who died for us. It says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. It's easier to love a person that we get along well with. We were, or the Ephesians, and we also were enemies of God. He loved us at that time. He was rich in mercy toward us at that time. We were dead in our trespasses. Yes, and they were our trespasses, not others' trespasses. We each have our own trespasses we can look back on. That was what made us dead. We were under the eternal judgment of God. We were dead with no way out. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the dried bones? Dead and dried bones couldn't bring themselves back to life. Remember Lazarus? He'd been in the tomb for four days. His body was decaying and putrid. Lazarus could do nothing. Remember Jairus' daughter? Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, who went to Jesus and asked, please come, my daughter's on the point of death. But on the way, Jesus got delayed by a lady who had been bleeding for 12 years and healed her. And then word came, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. She could do nothing. Death is final. But God. But God made us alive together with Christ. His power did it. It was his creation. It was his action of mercy and great love. He made us alive by his great might, just as he had with Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 19. uh, 19, 19, Yes, 19. By the working of his great might, he worked in Christ to raise Christ from the dead. So Jesus couldn't stay dead because God used his great might to bring him back to life. 
And nor could the Ephesians stay dead. Because God, in his great might, made them alive. Alive, not physically, but alive in contrast to the death of verse 1. You are dead in the trespasses and sins. And verse 5, even when we're dead in our trespasses, God made them alive from their sins. That they could have forgiveness and live without being slaves of sin. Notice also it says that we were made alive together with Christ, not apart from Christ. God didn't just bring people back to life and say, okay, now you're on your own, work things out. Fend for yourselves, do the best you can. No, he made us alive together with Christ, with him, the best one, the perfect one, the holy one, the most powerful one. We are with Christ. Speaking again of Jairus' daughter, although they said, don't bother the teacher anymore, Jesus still went. He went into the house with the parents and a few of his disciples. And he took the little girl by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And when that girl came back to life, she was holding Jesus' hand. She was raised with Christ. And Jesus, continuing on to show his compassion, didn't just then walk out of the house. Now he said to the parents, give her something to eat. Always mindful and loving as our saviour. The next words in our verse 5 are, by grace you have been saved. By grace. It's his initiative. Being dead, we were not at all interested in any other kind of life. He had to do something, just like he did for the bones in Ezekiel's vision, just like he did to Lazarus, and just like he did for Jairus' daughter. He is the only one who can save because we, including the Ephesians, were all dead. By grace you have been saved. Again, it's in the past. You have been saved. Yes, but he's thinking still of the same great event. The death of Jesus and our forgiveness. And that salvation continues, as we'll see later. The Ephesians have been saved from verse 1 to 3. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. Now they are made alive. They were following the course of this world like sticks flowing down a great river, unable to go against the stream. But now they were able to get their guidance from God and his scripture. They were people who were following the prince of the power of the air. 
But now they were under the power of the greatest one, the Lord Jesus himself. They were under wrath, but now they were under mercy. Verse 6, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I read before from chapter 1, when God raised Jesus from the dead, <clears throat> he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Again, that's speaking of the Ephesians, especially for them, I think, as being above the prince of the power of the ear, and they have all the spirits that they used to try to manipulate with their spiritual magic. You might remember that the Ephesians are the ones that came and burned lots and lots of books on magic, trying to influence the spiritual realm. They didn't need them anymore. They had the power of Jesus working with them. Verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The coming ages speaks of now and the days ahead. It speaks also of our future earthly life. And it speaks also of eternity. God has a plan for you for the coming ages. His plan is that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. We have received God's greatest kindness, which is in the life and death of Jesus. But there's more kindnesses to come throughout this life and in eternity. This makes me think of Psalm 23, which... We know so well, but I will read Psalm 23. <clears throat> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And note this last verse. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Just as Ephesians says, God continues to show his great kindness to us in these coming ages and through to eternity. 
I'm also reminded of a story of Jonathan's son. You maybe remember that Jonathan was the son of King Saul, and Jonathan was also David's best friend. Jonathan had a son. His name was Mephibosheth. You'll find the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, being the son of Jonathan and the grandson of King Saul, he would be next in line to the throne. His father, Jonathan, and his granddad, King Saul, were both killed in battle, which David was greatly distressed about. Let's read chapter 9 together. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Let's ponder that a moment. That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. In the same way, God wants to show us kindness for Jesus' sake. Because of what Jesus has done, God wants to show us in the coming ages, his grace and kindness toward us. 2 Samuel 9 verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. <coughs> and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, so always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate with, at, at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. 
So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. So being a lame person, he had been unable to provide for himself to go out to work. He'd be reliant on the kindness of others. Now David's just made him a very (coughs) rich, wealthy person (coughs) by giving him all that used to be Saul's. Yes, Psalm 23. We are feasting at his table. Our cup runs over. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow all the days of our lives. The last verse, verse 7 of Ephesians 2 ends toward us in Christ Jesus. Not apart from Christ. We don't receive kindness from God apart from Christ. And nor would we want to. Imagine if God said, <clears throat> I'm going to give you great kindness, great grace, <clears throat> now in <and> eternity. <clears throat> but you can't have Christ. You can't communicate with him. That would not be life. That would be misery. God gives us kindness in Christ. For without Christ, life is not life. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 have moved from darkness to light, from misery to joy, from wrath to mercy, death to life. This is not just a sermon about or a passage about the Ephesians and Paul. This is a sermon about you. You were, verses 1 to 3, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You followed the course of this world. You and I followed the prince of the power of the air. We all lived in the passions of our flesh. We were all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, now you're different. Now you've been made alive with Christ. You've been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in the coming ages, you'll receive immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. You are Mephibosheth. He was lame, unable to save himself. He was lame, we were dead, unable to save ourselves. But God. Let's pray.
We give you thanks, Father, for these words which Paul wrote. He, by your grace, was able to express the gospel in so many different ways, so clearly and powerfully. We give you thanks for letting us know the gospel and for being brought to life, raised and seated with Christ. Your goodness and mercy follows us day by day. Even in our trials, Mephibosheth continued to be lame, but always received the kindness you provided to him through David. You have not only brought us into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, forgiven us our, our sins by your rich mercy, but you have also provided for us an eternal future. We are just going to continue showing your grace. We give you thanks now and ask that you help us to celebrate that. In Jesus' name, amen.